This is Melissa, and it is the 10th of December, 2023. I'm recording this on Friday night, just because my schedule's pretty tight right now. We've had really nice weather all week long, so it has been in the mid to upper 60s. That's about 20, 21 degrees Celsius, and I hear it's getting a little colder tonight, which is really just a drop down into the 50s. And that's about six or seven degree drop Celsius. So it's been quite pleasant, really nice. After such a brutal, brutal summer, it is nice to ease into winter and to really have this kind of pleasant autumn temperature carry on into December. The redux that I am doing tonight is actually I'm piecing together some excerpts from two talks that Alan gave on RBN, Republic Broadcasting Network. And the first segment that I'm going to do is small, and that was from May 28, 2023. And this is a good talk. There's a lot going on here, and if you want to go back and listen to the entire talk, I'll supply the link. Alan talks about radicalizing websites, you know, and a lot of times there's intelligence agencies that are involved in that. Um, Therefore, don't join groups, don't get lured into something like that. But also how we're just, everything is monitored. And, you know, this was 10, more than 10 years ago, and it's so much worse now. So there, there's actually a lot going on in this talk that's quite worth a re-listen. But I just chose a small segment there because Alan was talking, he was reading an article from the Daily Mail, May 27, 2013. Tony Blair to be in charge of three billion pound plan to revitalize Palestine's economy, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry reveals. I mean, this is just so rich. When I look at these people, like John Kerry, who is now uh, the climate czar and is still over at COP28 in Dubai, and I look at Tony Blair, these these players that just never go away, they, they keep getting reinvented and put into new positions, it's hard for me to, to, to say, oh, they're pirates or gangsters because the worst raping and pillaging that pirates have done just pales in comparison to the crimes of somebody like Tony Blair. And that he's, you know, this is the fox in charge of the hen house for sure. And what brought that to my mind was that a few weeks ago, um, Israel had said that it was seeking to appoint UK's Tony Blair as Gaza humanitarian coordinator. It's just, it's amazing. They've got such a racket going on. I, I know that some people in the UK were angry with Blair because he had called Henry Kissinger an artist I think he was talking about the artistry of his diplomacy, but, you know, people were not happy with that. But so what? You know, unless we really hold them to account somehow, it doesn't matter. They never go away. So the second 
connection. Oh, I also want to point out too, just, you know, I hope you listen. I hope you keep listening to this talk because Alan's comments after he read that article are pretty priceless. And the other thing too is that I can't find, you know, really anything tangible that came of that plan. Now it said it was a three billion pound plan. Didn't say that the money was in escrow somewhere. But other than a RAND think tank report on it, you know, just saying how Blair should proceed, I haven't seen any follow-up on what he's done. But obviously, Palestine has not been rebuilt. Their economy did not get helped by Tony Blair's efforts. So in the larger chunk that I'm going to put in there for you is from a talk that Alan did on RBN October 13, 2011. And the poem that went along with that, You've no conception by way of deception to have constant conflict for next 40 years, chaos, creation, confusion, woes, and fears. Deception club manifests their world society. It is cruel, merciless, arrogant, no piety. Wars physical, cultural, even on gender. Hang on to sanity. We're on a bender. PC enforcement to make peoples tame. Fed, local and bylaws going insane. Driven by world institutions, unelected. Usurping systems, you're unprotected. World governance, yet no capital, visible, authoritarian, scientific, peoples miserable, a thousand points of light, working as one, the great work racing, confident it has won. So think about it, we're a dozen years later, and you know, once again, boy did he call it, and we are really on a roll. So in this talk, again, the whole thing is worth listening to. He talks about the new American century war agenda. And we have all heard about that PNAC and the countries that have to be taken out. And Hillary Clinton, Tony Blair, the Palestinian quartet. And that is, you know, what happened to Tony Blair after he left office? Well, he became part of the quartet. Oh, that's over in the Middle East, just helping out a friend to the Middle East. And Another section that I want to put in there is when Alan talked about Ronald Storrs, who was part of the creation of the modern state of Israel. And this goes back to the Balfour Declaration. We are creating a new Ulster. That's Northern Ireland. So that's Northern Ireland. And Alan explained that in greater detail. In this article from a few weeks ago in the Times of Israel, it said, Israel is seeking to install former British Prime Minister Tony Blair as a humanitarian coordinator for the Gaza Strip, according to a report Sunday, out of a desire to improve the humanitarian situation inside the Palestinian enclave and reduce international pressure as it continues to wage its war on Hamas. Now, I'll post this, and you can read it yourselves. This article predates the temporary 
ceasefire, a little bit of humanitarian aid, and now they have once again resumed. I haven't seen much more about Tony Blair doing, you know, being appointed to manage the humanitarian outreach there. But here is a little something from The Telegraph. Rishi Sunak received advice on the Middle East from Sir Tony Blair on Friday as the two men met briefly at the COP28 summit to discuss world affairs. Mr. Sunak met with the former Labour Prime Minister as he spent around 12 hours in the United Arab Emirates for the climate change conference. The Telegraph understands that while their discussion did not last for more than a couple of minutes, it touched on the politics of the Middle East as turbulence in the region continues amid the Israel-Hamas war. Mr. Sunak and and Sir Tony briefly discussed the situation on a day that saw a week-long pause in hostilities come to an end as fighting resumed, so this was a week ago, roughly, between Israeli troops and Hamas terrorists. Britain, joining the United States in the invasion of Iraq, has come to define Sir Tony's 10-year premiership with a backlash to the decision continuing to overshadow many other aspects of his decade in power. Sir Tony has continued to take a keen interest in foreign policy since leaving office, not least through his think tank, the Tony Blair Institute. The Institute has controversially continued to advise Saudi Arabia in the wake of the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, an act it has strongly condemned. It came as Mr. Sunak also discussed the Israel-Hamas war with Qatari and Jordanian leaders on the sidelines of the main COP28 program. So anyway, when I see these people, these creatures, whatever they are, and they never go away. Here's in the the first article that, you know, Alan read from in 2013, Tony Blair to be in charge of three billion pound plan, says Secretary of State John Kerry, and now he's the climate czar and over at COP28. All of this got me thinking about a documentary that I saw years ago from the early 2000s that was written and presented by John Pilger, who is a journalist, an Australian journalist. And when I looked it up to just kind of refresh my memory about it, it was directed by Tony Stark, which I thought was kind of funny because I was just talking about the fictional character Tony Stark from the Iron Man movies. He's a weapons dealer. But anyway, I'm sure there are plenty of men called Tony Stark, and this one directed Palestine is still the issue. And I will link to that documentary because it is illuminating, and guess what? Palestine is still the issue. Pilger returns to the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza, where he filmed a documentary with the same title in 1977. He believes the basic problems are unchanged, a desperate, destitute people whose homeland is illegally occupied by the world's 19th largest military power. I kind of wonder if that military power has moved up the food chain a little bit. 
It said the majority of the film is dedicated to interviewing Israelis, some of them settlers or advisors for the government, other Israelis who are critical towards the politics of their government. However, the film takes time to speak with many Palestinians, and it goes into depth to explain to Western audiences why the Palestinians feel they have to keep resisting the occupation of the territories and fight back against the blockade of the Gaza Strip. Now there are a, a the, there was one story that that I saw yesterday that was just disgusting. There's no other way to say it. This is disgusting, and it's still being investigated. I'm sure. But uh, this is the killing of Reuters journalist, and, and it said that this killing was apparently a deliberate Israeli strike. Human Rights Watch found that the slain journalist and six colleagues were not near active fighting in southern Lebanon and would have been clearly visible to Israeli forces. An October 13 strike that killed a videographer for the Reuters news agency and injured six others in southern Lebanon was carried out by the Israeli military and appeared to be a deliberate attack. Okay, that's a repeat there. The watchdog group said that evidence it had reviewed, including dozens of videos of the incident, photographs and satellite images, and interviews with witnesses and military experts, showed that the journalists were not near areas where fighting was taking place and that there was no military objective near their position. The attack on the journalists' position directly targeted them, the report said labeling the attack a war crime. The Israeli authorities did not immediately respond to the report. Now, I heard some other uh, stuff. I heard Anthony Blinken, who is the current Secretary of State for the U.S., was saying that Israel needed to conduct their own investigation and conclude that investigation as soon as possible. But, you know, for what that's worth, Reuters published its own investigation on Thursday and said that an Israeli tank crew had killed its journalist and wounded the others. The evidence we now have and published today shows that an Israeli tank crew killed our colleague Issam Abdallah, said Reuters editor-in-chief Alessandra Galoni. She called on Israel to explain how this could have happened and to hold to account those responsible. Now, you can read the rest of this, but I'll tell you that I watched um, some film of this, and it shows the area where the strike occurred. It's really on a hilltop. It's very visible. All of the journalists were wearing huge flak jackets that were labeled press, and they caught some of this activity on a live stream. And the munitions that were used, um, let's see if I can find that. The munitions that were used were fired within 37 seconds of each other. And the type of munition, it said, Lebanon does not have that. Hamas does not have that kind of munition. It's only Israel. And one of the journalists said, we absolutely felt like they put their sights on us 
they did this deliberately and they did this because they don't want the truth of the situation coming out. We were standing there live streaming, clearly marked press. There was absolutely no fighting going on anywhere near us. We were in a non-militarily active spot, et cetera, et cetera. So it is interesting to take a look at. And I had also seen another article from earlier this month and a kind of an opinion piece from John Pilger. Now, John Pilger is 84 years old and he has, he has done some wonderful journalism in the course of his very long career, but you can't lean much further to the left than John Pilger. So I'm going to read a little bit of this. I'll post it. I'm going to have to interject with a couple of comments though here. You know, the trouble is, is that politics, when politics enter in, as Alan so brilliantly pointed out in this segment that I'm putting up, when you see the agenda, the same agenda carry through, regardless of the administration, know that you're under tyranny, Thomas Jefferson. He said, you know, that, that people want to continue following politics and voting. He said, that's a decision, and you have to leave them to it. But unfortunately, even some of the very best journalism that we get comes with this, you know, heavily politically slanted. And that's the case with Pilger. But this piece he entitled, We Are Spartacus. There can't be democracy and colonial war. One aspires to decency, the other to fascism. Meanwhile, once welcomed mavericks are heretics now in an underground of journalism and a landscape of mendacious conformity. Spartacus was a 1960 Hollywood film based on a book written secretly by the blacklisted novelist Howard Fast and adapted by the screenplay writer Dalton Trumbo, one of the Hollywood Ten who were banned for their un-American politics. That's in quotes, un-American. It is a parable of resistance and heroism that sparks unreservedly to our own times. Both writers were communists and victims of Senator Joseph McCarthy's House Un-American Activities Committee, that's also known as HUAC, which during the Cold War destroyed the careers and often the lives of those principled and courageous enough to stand up to a homegrown fascism in America. So this is, this is where I have to interrupt here. Because there's, there is a party line that says that McCarthy's, what he was doing was a witch hunt, the Red Scare. There was a communist under every pillow, under every blanket, under every sofa. There was a communist. And then Pilger makes the comment here, homegrown fascism in America. Well, if you really get in and study American politics and American history during this period, there's not much evidence to homegrown fascism that I can find in America. The only fascism that I can see is the fascism that the Frankfurt School wrote about in their... Uh, most well-known piece, The Authoritarian Personality. 
in which they labeled basically all Americans and the American psyche and American values, you know, God and family and a, a, a certain patriarchal society, sorry, but there you go, as being fascist in nature. But what you did have at that time was government under FDR and prior to him, even Woodrow Wilson, but you had the American government was riddled like the pox with communists, card-carrying communists, some who were discovered in their lifetimes and some posthumously. So whatever you think of McCarthy and whatever you think of uh, fighting communism, that was a real threat. Fascism, not so much. The other thing, too, that if you don't have a full grasp on history uh, or you're not willing to share everything that you know, so he talks about how courageous it was for these blacklisted writers to carry on. Well, let think for a moment who blacklisted them. They were blacklisted, meaning they could not get jobs in Hollywood because they refused to testify or name names at HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. And because of that, they were blacklisted. So it's not like McCarthy or the American government or anyone in government said, these men can't work. That was Hollywood that did that to their own. They threw their own writers to the wolves. They were the sacrificial lambs. So you never, ever hear that. It's just the outrage of red baiting and the red scare and communist hunting. But nobody ever says, well, wait a minute, who was it? And this was decades before, you know, now you could say, well, Holly was just run by corporations. It's a, you know, nameless, faceless entities that run the business, which I don't believe. But at that, at that time, in the 1950s, these were studio heads that could be named. They had faces. This was a personal business, almost a family business, if you will. But it was, you know, these, these, they were blacklisted by Hollywood. And the other thing that almost nobody knows is how many of these writers wrote under pseudonyms. So they were blacklisted, but they continued to make a living. Here is something from the LA Times, 2016, how Dalton Trumbo, now that's the one that he just mentioned as the writer of Spartacus, Pilger, how Dalton Trumbo and other blacklisted writers quietly racked up 50s Oscar wins. Uh, I'll post that link there for you. I don't want to get too far afield here. And I saw a film, actually, I saw this movie with Alan, but it is called The Front. And it is, it's a a Woody Allen movie. Now, I'll tell you, frankly, once uh, Woody Allen married his stepdaughter, I didn't want to see another one of his movies. And I told that to Alan, but he said, well, some things are educational and they're worth seeing 
So I watched this with him. The Front is a 1976 American drama film set against the Hollywood blacklist in the 1950s when artists, writers, directors, and others were rendered unemployable, having been accused of subversive political activities in support of communists or of being communists themselves. So in movie form, and it's fictional, but in movie form, it's the big inside joke. Oh, yeah. Well, they're so-called blacklisted. So the front is, if they weren't using a pseudonym, they would actually just go out and get some other screenwriter who was in the guild, who could, you know, had the ability to write, and he would put his name on something that was written by a blacklisted writer. So this this left and far left outrage over uh, the blacklist, I can't get behind, but. Sorry, that was a, quite the detour there. It's still a good piece by Pilger. He said, he goes on to talk about how many people are being persecuted right now for their stance on Palestine. He said, from Washington and London, the virulence has no limit. Israel, the colonial anachronism and unleashed attack dog, is armed to the teeth and granted historical impunity so that we, the West, ensure the blood and tears never dry in Palestine. British MPs who dare call for a ceasefire in Gaza are banished. The iron door of two-party politics closed to them by a labor leader who would withhold water and food from the children. In McCarthy's time, there were bolt holes of truth. Mavericks welcomed then are heretics now. An underground of journalism exists in a landscape of mendacious conformity. Dissenting journalists have been defenestrated, that's thrown out or tossed from a window, literally, from the mainstream, as the great editor David Bowman wrote. The media's task is to invert the truth and support the illusions of democracy, including a, quote, free press, end quote. Now, he makes some good points, and he talks about Julian Assange, and sure enough, Julian Assange does not get spoken about enough, and Pilger has been a good champion of him. So I'm going to skip through here, um, and it's well, well, well worth reading. But what he's talking about is that in the movie Spartacus, the Romans called on Spartacus's men, that Spartacus was a slave, played by Kirk Douglas. He said, identify the leader and be pardoned. And instead of pointing the finger at Spartacus, all of them, hundreds of them, stood up and raised their fists and shouted, I am Spartacus, and the rebellion was underway. Pilger writes about this MP, David McBride, who has been punished for speaking out, and Julian Assange. He said, Julian and David are Spartacus. The Palestinians are Spartacus. People who fill the streets with flags and principle and solidarity are Spartacus. We are all Spartacus, if we want to be. So there's a lot that could be said about the Middle East, this so-called war. And one of the things that is most galling to me right now is the questioning of how many Palestinians have died in Gaza. 
And you'll see articles. I, I may post a couple from different sites. But depending who you're reading, they'll say, you know, more than 17, going on 18,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children, have been killed. And then you'll get it from the other side that will say, well, the people who are in charge of counting the dead are really the Hamas. They control everything. And so you're getting grossly exaggerated numbers. So there's so much that we can't know. Fortunately or unfortunately, we are not digging through the rubble and we're not pulling bodies out and we're not helping to notify their families that they've lost loved ones. We do know in some cases whole families have been wiped out. This is an atrocity that continues. So I may quibble with John Pilger on his politics, but as he said in 1977, and as he said in the documentary that he put out in 2002, Palestine is still the issue. And here is Alan. Thank you. Now, I mentioned, too, that the Royal Mail, everything's to get privatized in this world order. Carl Quigley, who was the, the archivist and, and the actual historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, said this himself from the plan, the big world plan. He says everything is to be privatized. A new feudal system would come in, and the new feudal overlords would be the new CEOs of the corporations. And we're here, basically, as they privatize everything off. Even the old sci-fi movies had this, this scenario in it, with the bulk of the population living in poverty and rubble, that's called austerity, and the rest of them living high, high, as I've seen a space-age kind of tech- technological setting. So that's how it's to be, no middle classes at all. But anyway, they're doing the same with the, with the banks, and, and they're doing, and some of the banks, the, the post office in Britain, which is going to be sold off to private speculators and so on. But also put a little link tonight to say that the banks have been asked to gauge by the end of the week the appetite for a one and a half billion pounds uh, uh, syndicated loan back to planned privatization of Britain's Royal Mail Group. So try to get money into it by loans to make it seem more appealing to those who are going to buy it. It'll be taxpayers' money too, I bet you it'll fund it all. But who's behind it? It's Rothschild. This is, the, this, is the, this is Reuters news. Rothschild is advising Royal Mail on the financing, uh, bankers said previously. And so, uh, same old story. These, these, the Rothschilds have been handling the planet for centuries now, you know, in very, very big ways. Now, we've seen so many times uh, very unpopular people being given charge of big cash uh, to, either for charity purposes, for disasters, for instance, and that's the last thing you ever hear, the money. It's like Bill Clinton was given charge along with Bush uh, as well, uh, senior I think it was, to look after the, the, the cash that was supposed to go to Haiti, for instance, after the earthquake, etc. And it all kind of just disappeared. Now, Tony Blair, who's been given a strange quasi-governmental job, and I say quasi because it's not really official, but he's getting paid by taxpayers' money to be part of the quartet, the column, who work in the Middle East. At the same time, he's allowed to make a lot of money for himself uh, for uh, advocating J.P. Morgan's uh, um, desires over there too. Anyway, Tony Blair is to be in charge of £3 billion plan to revitalize Palestine's economy. What a joke that is. And U.S. Secretary of State uh, John Kerry reveals. Now, Kerry is completely on board with all other factions and enemies, actually, of Palestine. 
So it's a complete joke, this thing. But it says, Secretary of State John Kerry has declared he believes that a potential $3 billion plan is emerging that could boost the Palestinian economy by up to 50% in the next three years. could also cut employment by two-thirds. The average wage could jump 40%, he said. But Kerry said it all depends on parallel progress on peace between Israel and the Palestinians, which will never come because Israel will never have it. And I've heard articles recently where they've all said that. That's never going to happen. And Kerry has been working with former Prime Minister uh, Tony Blair and global business leaders to devise economic plans to revitalize the Palestinian economy. They might get some new paint for their barbed wire, you know, that keeps them all under wraps. He offered few specific details that acknowledged that his vision might easily be taken as fantasy in a part of the world that suffered through decades of conflict and where peace prospects remain dim. We know it can be done, he insisted. It's a plan for the Palestinians' economy that's bigger, bolder, and more ambitious than anything proposed in the last two decades. So we'll see where the money really goes, or else we won't see where it goes, as I say. But it's all a joke, and it's more of a PR stunt, this one, than anything else. Hi, folks, we're back, and we're cutting through the matrix. Also, too, uh, Joe Biden, it's amazing, this man has no self-respect at all, he's... he's, um, in any age, this man would get up to near power as long as he praised the power. But it says here that Vice President Joe Biden offered praise for the Jewish community that raised some eyebrows and seems to have delighted anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists. At a DNC event for Jewish American Heritage Month Tuesday evening, after noting Jewish Americans' uh, disproportionate representation in Congress, impressive share of Nobel Prizes, and role in the civilian rights and women's rights movements, Biden then praised their work on behalf of gay marriage via the control of the media. I believe what affects the movements in America, what affects our attitudes in America, are as much the culture and the arts as anything else, he explained. Think behind of all that, I bet you 85% of those changes, whether it's in Hollywood or social media, are a consequence of Jewish leaders in the industry, he says. Biden also cited one of his favorite explanations for the success of gay marriage. It wasn't anything we legislatively did. It was will and grace. It was a social media, literally. That's what changed people's attitude. That's why I was so certain that the vast majority of people would embrace and rapidly embrace the measure. In those developments, Biden explained the influence of Jewish people is immense. The influence is truly immense. He says the vice president's comments have been seized upon and praised by a range of anti-Semitic and white supremacist groups and websites, even though, he said, I may add, the Jewish community's influence in the media is all to the good, he says. And that was from the National Review. And so it's... It ties in with what a lot of people have been saying, mainly about they're angry at Hollywood, etc., for radically changing from the days of before even McCarthy, uh, Hollywood was changing the culture of America. And, of course, it came up to during the anti-American uh, um, uh, meetings that they had, too, and inquiries uh, that, uh, that this was so. And many of the guys in Hollywood came forward, and some of them had to step or stoop pretty low and expose the fact that they were pushing various communist things during the Cold War through their movies and so on, and script writers. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 13th of October 2011. For newcomers, go into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and help yourself to the audios. There's hundreds and hundreds to choose from and hopefully you'll start to get an understanding of this big system you're born into, the one in the media that keeps you distracted from ever discovering really and you'll find that the world's run by not just big international corporations all laced together, and networking together, 
under a common head, obviously, but also they have a parallel government. It's been here for a long time with foundations, armies and armies of non-governmental organizations which lobby governments. And uh, the governments, of course, are, are just waiting to be lobbied so they can pass laws. Which the, This is the Soviet system, as I've said before, the new Soviet system, the more perfected one because it's ruled by councils as we go into communitarianism. And some countries are already ahead of others. The Britain is the flagship for the communitarianism idea, uh, collectivism in a, in a form, and decentralization. The U.S. and Canada elsewhere, we still go that way too. But it's, it's, it's encroaching if you read all the different laws that are coming down the pike often very quietly, they all coalesce together to bring you into this new system of austerity, etc. So, help yourself to the audios. Remember, from the U.S. to Canada, you can buy the books and discs I've got at cuttingthroughmatrix.com, and you can use a personal check from the U.S. to Canada, or an international postal money order from the post office, which is about the same price as an ordinary postal order. You can also send cash, or you can use PayPal. You'll find the button and how to do it on the, the com site, cuttingthroughmates.com. You can also uh, send donations as well, straight donations if you want, because it's awfully welcome as you go into inflation in these depressing times. Because we're in a depression, really. It's not a recession at all. It's manufactured because this is the time for global change to bring in the global society. And this is why they're stepping up crisis after crisis. I've mentioned articles before, um, about continual conflict, etc., perpetual wars. This is the stage we're in right now. And the war is not just about countries, it's about changing all the countries across the world eventually into common culture. Brzezinski's talked about that even recently, and, uh, and sort of Kissinger in recent talks have given. So help yourself, as I say, remember to, to purchase or donate. It's up to you. And straight nations, as I say, are definitely welcome because things are getting pretty tight all over the place, of course. I try to uh, document really the, the changes we're going through, uh, give you a, an insight into how long ago uh, different parts of the big agenda were first put on the table and published, at least to the public. It's always to the, to the special groups first to publish them long before it comes out to the public, so you have to go into the think tanks themselves to find out really how they originated and where they want to go. And the astonishing thing is, even uh, big world meetings they had 40, 50 years ago, you'll find that they've never altered their course, uh, they've never altered uh, what they wanted to bring in, what kind of world system they were bringing in. And the guys who set up the, the currency system from Bretton Woods uh, talked about part two, and we're, going, we're in part two now, that's what it's all about, raising up the World Bank to status, the Bank for International Settlements, and the IMF to help run the world's system, really, this new form of governance. And it's a strange mixture of private and public, because really the governments, as you've probably noticed for many years now, are just parts of the corporations. That's who they've always catered to, and uh, the, your politicians and high-level appointees are even more important. In fact, the appointees come straight out of, of the CEO positions of corporations into politics, get certain things done in their term, and then they're back in as CEOs of other corporations, or even the same ones. This is the farce we're living through, cutting through the matrix, and just talking about how you chronicle the events, because we're just living through a big, long script, a script where real wars are started, uh, simplistic stories are given to the public because you must always get public support for any war and, uh, and it's got to be simplistic uh, stories they give us too 
often incredible. It's strange that, that the more incredible the story, the, the easier it is for most folk to swallow. But that's how it's done. They've found out through lots and lots of testing, and that's how it works. And we find out that, of course, that uh, for those who've followed the New American Century agenda uh, from the 90s, where they, they had a list published of the countries they wanted to take down uh, through various soft power means, that's what's called today color revolutions, and NGOs flown in, of course, and put into universities and to agitate and, and take time, a few years, to get demonstrations and then uh, revolutions going, and plus hard power as well. But they had the whole list of countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, they had Syria, uh, they had uh, um, uh, Libya, and, of course, Iran too. So we're going along through this agenda and it's the same agenda, of course, as was published in openly in the newspapers in Israel at the time as well. And that's why you should always save the articles when you come across them and put them somewhere safe because your computers are always crashing these days. But anyway, uh, as, as I say, it's, uh, it's one of these imperative things. Then when you go into the strategic trends analysis of the think tanks, that's what they call them, strategic trends reports for the year whatever, 2007. One was published this year again an update to it, and this particular think tank works for the Department of Defense for Britain and NATO, and uh, uh, they came out with the next 40, 50 years, uh, and all kinds of areas, the global community, uh, the, the, the march towards world governance, as they call it, and, and then eventually, of course, uh, a kind of disintegration of the world governance as city-states, very high-tech city-states emerge, and they have to take over for the future. And some of these, the countries will, will disappear altogether. But cities, these big city-states were supposedly going to be in a world where there's a, a vastly reduced population. And all the special people, the ones with the, the bright ideas and I guess the right qualifications come through into a kind of new age. And so they publish all this stuff. And in the meantime, of course, they also publish... Uh, the chaos that they, that they know. They, before 2007, remember, they were working on all of this stuff, before the banks crashed and all the rest of it, and they knew there were going to be bank failures all over the place because that was agenda. And it's to bring you into an age of austerities, it's called, and inflation, and then that will make the march uh, and, and the drumbeat sound for uh, getting a world currency, or at least someone in charge of the whole of the world's currencies. And, of course, that's the BIS and the IMF and World Bank. So you're living through a script, as I say, where people really uh, start wars and people really die in them too. And the one thing that you'll, you'll find lacking through everything is any kind of truth as to the reasons why. We're not supposed to know the truth of anything at the bottom level. We're too dumb for it, apparently, and we're too emotional. That's another thing, too. We're too emotional. We get all het up and bothered about things uh, when we feel indignancy or injustice in the world. And that, that's, of course, the academic a response to the ordinary people because academia itself is allowed to discuss all the taboo topics amongst themselves they say, and they had said openly even Canadian television that, that the general public can't discuss these particular topics because they lose control of themselves through emotion so in other words we're treated like children and of course it's easy to get the public on board in any particular agenda and the worst thing about it is too we're living in an abusive system I've always said that the, the, the abused always turns to the abuser for help. That's how they're trained. And um, they see that the, the abuser is all-powerful. Today it's the, it's the governments of the world uh, that are abusing their own peoples. 
They've always stood up for the big banks that plunder the peoples, and they even reward the big banks so that the big banks have lost nothing at all. If anything, they've gained an awful lot, and the ordinary folk are left to pay off the debt because all the money we have to throw at the banks is borrowed by your governments, and you're put down as a guarantor. So really, as I say, you're living through a script. Now, it's interesting, too, in the Middle East, uh, you, you compare it with the Strategic Trends reports once again, and they talk about uh, the future wars will be wars for, for really um, for territories which contain resources. So natural resource wars, that's oil, gold, platinum, everything else you can get a hold of, all the minerals they use in industry and that kind of stuff. So, and they also mentioned too, they will make alliances along the way, whichever one suits them, and they might jump from one country to another, making alliances, and then turn against another country, depending on where they go. Uh, this is already happening, as you well know. So, as I say, we're just living through the script, something planned long ago, and we have to go through the chaos of it as it goes along. Now, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, it's interesting, she gave a, a talk, and it's in the Jerusalem um, News, I'll put two links up tonight, and uh, one's from Reuters as well. Uh, she is part of this quartet, this, this uh, strange supranational body, they call it supranational uh, body, uh, that uh, some private people put up. Uh, and uh, she, along with Tony Blair and a couple of other people, one from Russia, I think one from France, maybe or somewhere else, or maybe Germany, uh, they, they're supposedly being assigned jobs. Now, they're all paid by their governments, like Tony Blair's is paid some uh, big lump sum by the government every year to go over to Israel and Palestine and supposedly, and across the Middle East, supposedly trying to bring peace. And I, I put up a link last week too of uh, the fact that Tony Blair has been so instrumental in feathering his own pocket and lining it very, very well uh, on the way because that seems to be all he's doing. Uh, he's done nothing for the Palestinians. That came out in the, in the video, the documentary. Uh, but he certainly has made an awful lot of money. And while he's getting paid by the government, he's also apparently uh, working for J.P. Morgan. That came out as well. So he's, he's grabbing oil and natural gas off the gas and all the rest of it and getting awfully stinking rich. But then what's a good psychopath to do? To him, there's nothing wrong in that at all, you see. So uh, it's quite amazing. But Hillary Clinton's another member of this quartet, as they call themselves. And she said um, on Tuesday... The Palestinians' push for UN membership is not going anywhere for now. And she said on Tuesday, arguing that they should re- resume peace talks with Israel quickly. She told Reuters many nations were making the case to the Palestinians that their formal letter delivered on September 23rd seeking UN membership would not give them a state and that the only viable path was direct negotiations with Israel. It's not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. And even if it were, you're not going to get a state through the United Nations. It's not going to happen, Clinton said, describing what she called the right case being made to the Palestinians. So she's like talking down to children in a way. But this, that's her nature, I suppose. And she's not biased, of course. But uh, uh, this is the sort of nonsense we're actually seeing as such a farcical uh, system because... The history of the creation of Israel goes way, way, way back, uh, based in London, way back, even before the Balfour Declaration. And uh, you can find the history of it if you go into the history of, of Rothschild, who started the whole funding to get uh, the beginnings of a state for, of Israel uh, back in the 1800s. And he financed mainly Russian people over to start it off.
And he called it his state, by the way. He said it wasn't. Those who were coming in asking for direction or could get funding for different projects. Yes, he says, no. He says, you'll do what you're told. He says, I own this land. I own it. <laughs> so that's the, that's the reality of that. Plus, I'll put up another one, too, from Israel News. And it's about the same thing. She was on the left-hand side of the page. You'll see the same speech actually given by Hillary Clinton. And some other articles, too, uh, as well. It's quite a good site, actually. And it's called the Daily Alert, and it's a conference of presidents of major American Jewish organizations by the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. And that's where you have to go to find anything about the Middle East. There's a lot of stuff they print over there, um, which your politicians are up to. You'll never get printed back home. Now, we've all heard, and I'm sure everybody on the radio, uh, who listen to the radio, has, is well aware of this utterly scraping the barrel of farces. Uh, to, to get an excuse to invade Iran. And I said at the beginning of this broadcast that they always give you simplistic stories, and you couldn't get more simplistic and incredulous than this one, but it's the, really about some used car sales guy, uh, Iranian, who supposedly made deals with the Mexican drug cartel to, to bump off the ambassador from, from um, Saudi Arabia. And it's utterly farcical, as we know. Utterly, utterly farcical. But I thought about it and said, now what do they intend? Why, why do they drag in the, the cartel uh, that they just happen to be uh, fighting right now in the sta- in, in the Mexico? Why, why do they drag that? Well, they've got two birds to kill with one stone. That's basically Iran and the, the, the major cartel that they want to eliminate in Mexico so that the other one which they back will continue to go. That's why they've dreamed up this farcical story. And, of course, it all started with someone setting somebody up, as always, someone who was a double agent, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, it's just farcical. It doesn't matter anyway. It wouldn't matter what, what, what reason they gave for it. As I say, it was on the table and discussed with the New American Century Group that simply transformed from the neocons into the neodems or neolibs, whatever you want to call them. It hasn't changed at all. Same agenda. And that's exactly what uh, Jefferson said. He says, when you see uh, an agenda go through the different houses, meaning the changes of Congress, the same agenda being pushed, he says, no, then you're under tyranny. And of course you'd be under tyranny for an awful, awful long time. That's really the truth of the matter. But we're so easily calmed, aren't we, and we love big speeches, at least most folk do. They want a daddy, really, you know. They want a daddy to stand up there and say all the right things to them. And uh, it makes them feel good. It makes them feel good. Uh, even though they never see any of the promises transpire, it gets worse and worse. It doesn't stop them from voting. And you cannot help people like that. You can't help them. It's impossible. It's a choice they make, actually. Now, there's also a caller hanging on. I'll, I'll get him now. It's Stephen from Oregon. If he's there, are you there, Steve? and I really appreciate taking my call. I read a lot of these websites who just beat up, watch just beat up Israel all the time. Now, I don't like Israel either, so don't think I'm some Republican or anything. This is all bull crap. You, you, you learned who I am. Uh, it's all bull. But they just want to beat up Israel, beat up Israel, beat up Israel. And I, I look at and I just ask simple questions of where was Israel, you know, in 1776 when Britain lost the war and they sent their bankers over? Where was Israel? And then I looked at the 1800s, um, where where Andrew Jackson was calling, you bankers, we don't like you, and I'll route you out, you know. And then you look at 19, and there was no Israel. 1913, when the Federal Reserve, 1900, when the Rock, Rock 
Rothschilds and the Rockefellers bought all the hospitals and all the school systems so they could control our education. Mm -hmm. Where was Israel during all this time? Where was Israel during World War II? And so I get a point, and I'm okay to be corrected. I'm fine with that. I'm not some rare. But why get so much on Israel, even though I dislike them a lot, <laughs> okay? Yeah. Uh, at the same time, why, why get on them so much when they weren't even around when mm -hmm. all this was really happening? I'm, I'll be quiet now that you talk. Yeah. Uh, well, what it is, I think, really is um, people, people forget that uh, the turmoil of the 1800s, I mean, there was massive turmoil going on across the whole world, especially across Europe. And uh, there were so many revolutionary groups on the go at the time, uh, from, from uh, the elementary socialism to, to communism uh, to anarchism and all the rest of it. And, uh, and some of them were, were kind of ethnic-based, put it that way, if you like, or religious-based. And uh, there, there was definitely a, a big uh, Jewish uh, concern to do with revolution as well involved, and that that stuck in everybody's craw at the time because because um, it, it crept into Britain and elsewhere. So it naturally took attention onto a people or a religion or a sect, if you like. And even then, it was a small branch within a sect as well, which didn't really even follow the religion as, as it's known by the rest of the public. So that's where that came out from. Then uh, Israel, modern Israel, uh, really was set up. To be, uh, I don't know if you understand the history of Northern Ireland. Uh, Ulster was set up by Queen Elizabeth I, really. That's where it all started. Uh, to conquer Ireland and use it as a breadbasket to, 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 to feed the British uh, Empire, the, the soldiers, troops, the navies, and all the rest of it. And right down to the present time, and only just recently you've got any kind of peace at all, there's always been conflict there because they brought in a, a people from another country into Ireland to dominate that country and they were actually most of them were from Scotland and they were radical uh, Presbyterians and amongst a Catholic population which they dominated and they took the land off them too and ended up being the lords so they were naturally hated now if you went to Sir Ronald Storr S-T-O-R-R he was the British um, governor general in other words he had the power of the, the king back in the 1920s and 30s. And his job was to oversee the influx of building up um, a Palestinian uh, or a Jewish state within Palestine. And he wrote a book about it. It's quite fascinating to, to get a hold of it. One of them is called actually Orientations, that's the one. And try and get a hold of it. Because he tells you, uh, the, throughout the book he says, and he's getting on well with everybody, all sides and so on, he's stopping conflicts and, and he's going to... Um, there's a lot of rabbis came in from other countries, and he thought it was a wonderful idea. But he said, he said, we, talking about Britain itself, or London, I should say, he says, we are creating an Ulster in the Middle East. In other words, a people who would be hated by everyone around them. It'll be a, it'll be a thorn in the side for everyone around them for, for eternity, basically. And uh, it'll cause conflict forever. And, and that's how Britain ruled. The world, they caused conflicts wherever they were. Or London, I shouldn't I should even say Britain. I hate using even the term, uh, the British people. I hear you. I understand. Yeah. It's, it's a, a clique in London, of course, and there's no doubt about it. The money boys had ruled, and they still rule a good part of the world through their cash systems. Uh, so, uh, uh, so this clique, as I say, that really, really was the British Empire that used the British people. 
you're awfully rich, but they also knew how to play the game of divide, conquer, and take the heat off themselves at the same time. And that's really why, as far as he was concerned, that they were creating a, a, a Jewish a Jewish state within Palestine at that time. And he lays it all out in his book that that was the reason. Yeah. And it's still happening today, you know. Is the Jewish the, the Jewish thing? Because I got you know my best friends go. It's the Jews. I'm going well, man. In my opinion, everybody has sex with everybody. I can be quarter Jew for all I know. Mm-hmm. You know and so it's hard for me to just like pick Jews. So Jews, mm-hmm. in your opinion, is Jews a uh, ethnic group or a political group? Uh, they'll, they'll tell you themselves. You can't really. Once they created the state of Israel, technically they became an ethnic group. I see. I see. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's a, it's a confusing thought process because I have good friends that I really like, and I, you know, I just don't want to get on this Jew thing too much. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But, that, but that's what it is, and it's well known too that they have such a that, that they've done such great propaganda across the world that they have tremendous support for them, tremendous support, uh, and and everyone else who isn't supporting them, who wants to be left alone in their own countries, like in America. Um, are rather angry about the fact that, that uh, a powerful and rich group are supporting a, a country, which is, as they see it, bringing them into conflict and war. Yeah, yeah I know, man. It just seems like people are just freaking crazy, aren't they? They're insane. Well, it's crazy as a fox, because believe you me, um, behind the scenes, as you well know, uh, big corporations are profiting incredibly from these wars as they take over the resources of these countries. Uh, forget the names of countries altogether, because the, the new, the, the new powerful system are really corporations. It's a feudal system of corporations, and they're using what's left of the nation states to get what they want. Because it was all laid out, remember, as I say in strategic, strategic stri- uh, trends report, uh, where they say that uh, the new system is, is really a feudal system. Carl Quigley said the same thing. Uh, a feudal system where the corporations are will be the new feudal overlords and the nation states are going to wither away. So uh, that that's pretty well happening as we live right now. Yeah. That's great. I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to call you soon, and I really appreciate you, uh, Alan. I, I love you so much. And anyway, that's all I got. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate you. I think you're the best. Well, thanks for calling. Right. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's um, Everything is so convoluted, but again, the media keeps it that way too. And um, there's no doubt animosity comes from powerful groups, as, as, a, as the world will see them, that seem to be manipulating other countries. But even the folk in Israel aren't, aren't all on board either with the decisions made in that country. And, uh, and often they say, what's, what's really going on? Who, who really rules them? Who really rules them? But corporations, as I say, are taking over everything. Um, all across uh, the, the Palestinian region, as I say, Tony Blair is making deals on the behalf of J.P. Morgan, and they're grabbing the natural gas, the, the rights to it, uh, uh, for about 50 years or whatever else it goes on for, and the rights to all the oil, etc. It's all about resources, and that's in Strategic Trends Report. You have to read it. That's the Department of Defense for the British military and for the... It's a think tank for the, the military and for NATO. That's why we're having all these conflicts as well right now. Now, from Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. I mean, your God, your gods go with you. And remember, too, to buy the books and purchase the discs, etc., and donate to me and keep me hanging on here as we go through these tough times. 
back with more tomorrow.